tuning in from and welcome to another episode of Better Place, Talking International Law. With me, Jonathan Coley, the Senior Lecturer at RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. Today, I am absolutely chuffed that our um, guest has agreed to sit with us for an interview. Uh, he's a, a luminary amongst luminaries, uh, amongst international law scholars and practitioners, someone that balances a very active practitioner bent to his career even as he holds down a university professorship. How, oh, how does he do it all? We will hopefully find out. Uh, Professor Sean Murphy, welcome. Thank you, Jonathan. It's great to be here. Thanks for the very kind introduction. I'm not sure it's all merited, but uh, it's much appreciated. Hey, just wait, there's more. It's not finished yet, Professor Murphy. Um, or am I, can I call you Sean? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, please. Um, where are you joining us from today? Sean? Uh, I'm at my home in McLean, Virginia. It's just outside Washington, DC. Fantastic. And um, uh, let me share with the, the listeners and the viewers a little bit more about your formal bio, if I may. Not sure. the entire bio. This is the highlights package. Um, indeed, hard to summarize almost a, a four decade career, if I may say, in international Yeah, law. it's going on that about 35 years so far. So yeah. But, but who's counting? <laughs> Sean Murphy teaches rights and practices in the fields of public international law and US foreign relations law at George Washington University Law School in Washington, DC. Before joining the GW Law Faculty in 1988, Professor Murphy served as legal counselor at the US Embassy in The Hague, arguing several cases before the International Court of Justice and representing the US government in matters before the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. He also served as a US agent to the Iran-US Claims Tribunal, arguing cases on behalf of the US government and providing advice to US nationals appearing before that tribunal. Between 1987 and 1995, he served in the US Department of State Office of Legal uh, Advisor, primarily advising on matters relating to oceans and international environmental law, international claims and international humanitarian law, the laws of war. Since leaving the US government, Professor Murphy has represented several countries in international courts and tribunals. They include Ethiopia, Kosovo, Macedonia, Uganda, and the US, and I think most recently Nigeria, uh, but we might get to that. Uh, and he has served as an arbitrator in interstate and investor state arbitrations. Professor Murphy is uh, widely published uh, and award-winning uh, author on international law. Um, and since 2012, Professor Murphy has also served as a member of the United Nations International Law Commission. And now into his second term, he serves as Special Rapporteur for Crimes Against Humanity. Professor Murphy has also served until very recently as the President of the American Society of International Law. And for the sake of time, I just have to stop there, Sean. I'm sorry. Um, I think you've gone on long enough, Jonathan. Uh, 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 I'm exhausted. Um, as I said earlier, not just a thinker of international law, but a doer um, and a lawmaker in quite the literal sense, uh, thinking about your international law commission work, which we'll, we'll get to. Did I miss anything? 
Uh, I think you said plenty enough. That sounds, uh, sounds, sounds perfect. Thank you. All right. Um, I'm glad you're getting uncomfortable in the chair. That's the way it's <laughs> supposed to be. No, uh, just kidding. Um, uh, and I, I'm doing a little collection of, of, of snippets of all my interviewees. So the, um, the follow-up question that just must be asked, your favorite ice cream flavor, Professor Murphy? Oh, chocolate um, chip, for oh, sure. Without too much hesitation, too. Okay. Yeah, chocolate chip. Yeah. An oldie, but a classic. A classic, and uh, yeah, I just like the, the, the basic vanilla, but then a little something to mix it up, you know? Oh, this is an important clarification. So it's actually vanilla <laughs> ice cream with the chocolate chips. Yeah. yeah. Okay, not chocolate ice cream with chocolate chips. No. Okay. Just regular, at least I would call regular chocolate chip ice cream, vanilla with vanilla the chips. With yeah. that. It's no. an important clarification. Uh, that is, <laughs> no, we can now proceed, sir. Um, Excellent. I'm curious, we are going through in 2020 a very weird year, uh, coronavirus, lockdowns, voluntary lockdowns, partial lockdowns. A few people have taken up some hobbies or learnt new languages or learnt how to crochet masks. Any particular sort of little hobbies that you have picked up in your time in lockdown? Um, you know, probably not, but I will say... I have two hobbies that I'm doing a lot more of. So one is gardening um, because I do have a, a fairly good sized yard and I like to go out and do stuff. But I'm doing a lot more now that I'm mostly at home, which is fun. It's a great way to get outside and yeah. get a little bit of exercise and also experiment a bit with the types of plants that'll work and what part of the yard and yeah. all that, cutting down a few trees, things, things along those lines. Um, and the other thing is bicycling, which I've always done, but it's dropped away a bit in recent years. And now I'm getting back into it again. Great way to get exercise, socially distance, um, yeah. you know, get around a bit, even though you're cooped up. So, and from what I recall, bonus. there's some great bike trails around, uh, uh, Northern Virginia too, isn't there? They, there are, there's wonderful trails that, uh, follow railroad lines and yeah. some instances follow, uh, parks. Um, you can ride all the way up and down the Potomac river, basically, depending on which side you're on. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, there's the canal on the Maryland side that you can ride way out west towards, um, uh, you know, Western Maryland. So it's, it's oh. actually a very good area for biking. you got to stop talking. You're making me misty eyed, very sentimental of our <laughs> time in BC. Uh, beautiful. Um, I'm curious. So we, we did run through a whole bunch of career achievements that any one would be a career highlight, but you've had so many, which, which career accomplishment are you most proud of? Um, let me ask you, are you referring to a single event or are you referring to just one of these positions of one kind or another that I've um, I, I like the, the point of clarification. Uh, a point of clarification on the point of clarification. Take it any which way you want. I was okay. just wondering if there was um, a career, yeah. uh, a, let, let's do it a career position that you are most proud of. Yeah. Um, I guess it would probably be as member of the International Law Commission. Um, it's a uh, important body, I think, that uh, does a lot of good work for the field of international law. And it has relatively few people on it, 34 total, 
um, being the only American on it, I feel like, you know, that's an important um, perch uh, for bringing to the table the way an international lawyer from the United States might think. And, um, you know, it's been an honor to be nominated for it. Uh, it's been an honor twice to be elected by the General Assembly to serve on it. And how does um, it work? The, the government uh, uh, um, selects you or uh, nominates you, and then it's uploaded to the UN General Assembly to elect all the all the members. Is that right? That's exactly what it is. That you have to be nominated by a government. Uh, it doesn't have to be a single government. You could have multiple governments nominate you, but uh, at least one government. And uh, there's regional groupings within the typical UN system. So I'm in the Western Europe and other group, which includes Australia. Um, and so we uh, have eight members coming from the WIAG group. And therefore, if there's say 10 or 12 candidates, uh, it's a competitive election and whoever gets the highest votes in the General Assembly, the, the top eight would, would get onto the commission. Yeah, and, and I mean, this is a very prestigious international law making body. In, in fact, you, you could argue, well, let me put it to you. I mean, this is the UN lawmaking body. Um, its mandate is there to progressively advance international law. Is that how you sort of see your role too? Well, it's a really interesting question and it's kind of a big question and it can be a controversial question in some ways. Um, I do describe the International Law Commission as the UN's legal think tank um, because I do think it's a place where ideas that should be discussed and should be wrestled with and, and um, hopefully codified uh, can emerge. Um, but in terms of it being lawmaking, that's a little bit controversial because, you know, the prototypical thing is we would send our project to the General Assembly and they would turn it into a treaty. That's the lawmaking function. At the same time, we could um, develop a project that's attempting to codify existing law, in which case we're helping people understand what the existing law is, but we're not making the law itself. But you're absolutely right that part of the mandate is progressively developing the law. And depending on how you interpret that, there could be some lawmaking component to it. Myself, I tend to be a little bit conservative in the way I think about progressive development. For me, that's if A is clearly a settled rule and B is clearly settled and D is clearly settled, it's okay for the commission to plug in C, right? So as to create the whole you know, package, but it's not okay for the commission to just say, okay, the rules are A, B, C, D, because yeah. we say they are. Yeah. All right. Well, well let's, let, let, let's fill out those, um, that, those, those letters, shall we? The A, B, C, Ds. Um, and I guess, though, I guess, it, it, you know, you, you mentioned when the letters A, B, C, D are well settled, and there's a, a possibility of addition, but I guess the question obviously always goes back to those first uh, assumptions about what is well settled international law. C could I could I mention two ILC projects that I know you've been uh, concerned with, and one you're, you're you're very much spearheading. So most students of international law have heard of the ILC in in relation to the Articles on State Responsibility, um, still these days referred to as uh, in many parts as the Draft Articles on State Responsibility. Um, 
I think uh, James Crawford was the special rapporteur. A great, he was, yeah, Aussie the last of them, yeah. Yeah, that that um, shepherded that um, well forty year project or something to conclusion. Um, uh, they are still referred to as draft articles or articles on state responsibility. They haven't been codified into a, any international treaty, and yet they are seen as the touchstone for the law of state responsibility. So, uh, crystal ball gazing, what hope is there uh, of turning that into hard law? And does it matter? Uh, are they genuinely now reflections of customary international law? Yeah, maybe I'll start by just noting that uh, there is this confusion about are they draft articles or are they articles? And it's a confusion that uh, exists for all of the projects we complete that don't actually be, get turned into something right. in particular. Uh, the theology within the commission, at least as best I understand it, is we call them draft articles right up to the point where we send them to the General Assembly. <clears throat> but as soon as the General Assembly accepts the articles uh, in the sense of you know acknowledging that they exist, commending them to governments for consideration, at that point, we stop referring to them as draft articles because in our view, the work's done on them. Right. They are what they are. Yeah. Um, and they are, are articles that could be used as states wish to use them, either turn them into a treaty or um, you know, just let them sit there as a form of codified uh, law. Um, you know, the articles on state responsibility, I think, have had a huge influence on the way people think about the field of state responsibility. It's an interesting question, to what extent is that because the commission did a good job at simply codifying rules that were out there that had been bubbling up through jurisprudence and state practice and so on, and to what extent did it create new rules that uh, are a form of lawmaking. Um, you know, in places where the articles remain somewhat controversial, such as on countermeasures, it's because states, some states didn't think that the commission was simply codifying, was doing more, and because uh, they, they, the states, don't accept that more, uh, yeah. therefore it's not law. Um, James Crawford, currently judge on the International Court of Justice, the last of the rapporteurs, he uh, was not of the view that they were best turned into a treaty, at least at the outset. Uh, and consequently, the commission, when it sent the articles forward, did not recommend that they be turned into a treaty right away. Um, and I think that may have been out of a sense that um, states might not proceed with a treaty, in which case it looks like maybe they don't accept the articles, or if mm. they did, it might not be a widely ratified treaty. Mm and that maybe it'd be better to just let them sit there and have the effect that they have. Right. It's an interesting choice because it suggests that, you know, the commission does want to have an influence even in the absence of a state formal imprimatur. Yeah. Um, but it one, may could, have been a one could suggest it was uh, astute politics on the behalf of Crawford and the ILC at the time, in the sense that if you are going to suggests these are a codification of customary international law and then they get summarily voted down in the general assembly or um you know a hard vote it might sort of undermine that claim to customary status 
Yeah, and I would say that it, it allows you to then talk a bit about the commission's projects generally because we've begun moving away from what could be draft treaties to other things, conclusions, principles, guide to practice, uh, that sort of thing, maybe because of a sense that um, we don't see treaties done so much anymore and it's a hard political fight when you right. when you get into it and therefore if you keep sending something forward saying turn it into a treaty and it doesn't happen right. ultimately over time it, it diminishes the effect force of your your work yes now, i'm not going to um take the opportunity to sit myself on the couch and talk about the latest draft of the business and human rights treaty that the un is currently drafting but um i think there's <laughs> something to be said about your last comment that could be applied to that task too um uh, moving though on to the ILC um, project that you are spearheading now, you have not gone the, the way, as far as I understand, of guidance. You, you are pursuing a treaty. In, in, in this uh, project, it is a treaty um, on crimes against humanity, of which you're the special rapporteur. Uh, and you've been the special rapporteur now for four years, and there is actually a draft of, of a treaty, international legal yeah. I don't know. Yeah, what I mean, it's not. Yeah, it's not styled as you know convention or treaty, but they are articles. Um, but we did actually finish the project last summer, so we have a full set of articles on the prevention and punishment of crimes against humanity that we sent to the General Assembly last fall with a recommendation that it be transformed into a convention either within the UN itself or by means of uh, convening a diplomatic conference. So that's yeah. been a pretty exciting development. And, and congratulations. Uh, and Thanks, I, yeah. I, I know you, you sent that out for stakeholder review and in the context of international law, it's civil society and countries that are actually providing input and feedback. And, and I have noted that you have adjusted some of the articles in light of those, um, uh, that stakeholder input. Um, I mean, it's a yeah, our, our, our approach is basically to do a first draft of, of it and then put it out, as you say, for a stakeholder review. And we got a large number of governments writing in. But what you're referring to, we got over 700 non-governmental organizations writing in about it, uh, largely saying, love it, support it, but also make these changes if you can and so on. And that did influence the commission's end game. Uh, on it. So uh, it was exciting to see that because the commission often is sitting in Geneva and, and just operating in a conversation with governments. And I think this was one of the first projects where we've had an enormous amount of interaction with non-state actors. It's a good, good uh, development. Which might go to the topic of crimes against humanity and the, the scope and the potential impact that it has. Uh, Sean, would you mind backing up a little bit and telling the audience what is a crime against humanity, and also why do we need another treaty on it? Yeah, no, I'd be happy to do that. So crimes against humanity are um, a type of crime that's been in existence for, for decades, uh, at least as conceptualized as a form of international law. Uh, people can think back to the Nuremberg and Tokyo tribunals and so on, and of course the current International Criminal Court um, a crime against humanity is a widespread or systematic attack against any civilian population uh, that takes the form of any number of enumerated types of acts, killing, 
uh, sexual assault um, and so on. And uh, so what it's trying to get at is not the one-off, you know, uh, injury, but a scheme, a pattern uh, that's been undertaken by a a government or a non-state actor. So you could think about, you know, the the ISIL, uh, ISIS type uh, um, organization, Al Qaeda, perhaps, you know, that that launches a widespread attack um, against the civilian population. We want to stigmatize those actions. We want to conceptualize pursuing the offenders or alleged offenders uh, by means of connecting them all together as a part of a group that's doing something. Right. And um, it, uh, it's a pretty you know, heinous atrocity, basically. Um, can, why, I, can, I, can I interrupt? Yeah. Sorry, Professor, before you go, just on the definition, I think important to, for, the, for the listeners to also distinguish between crimes against humanity and war crimes. Key difference is, is not the actual acts, but it's the widespread systematic attack. And we don't need an armed conflict. Uh, in existence for a crime against humanity, whereas we would for a war crime. That's absolutely right. So you could have a a single government inflicting these horrific acts against their own, its own people within its own state, such that there's no armed conflict even, let alone international armed conflict. And that can be a crime against humanity. So in many situations, um, you know, you'll find crimes against humanity where you won't find war crimes because there's no armed conflict. You could also compare it to genocide, where you have a relatively high uh, standard set for proving an intent to you know, kill or in whole or in part, say an ethnic or, or religious group or something like that, racial group, uh, very high standard to set. So in many ways, crimes against humanity gives you more options for going after someone for bad acts than the other major crimes, major atrocity crimes that are out there. And, and is that really the, 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 the raison d'etre, is to expand the scope and the flexibility to go after those bad, bad actors? Is that why we need, because we've got the Genocide Convention, we've got the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, which is where you essentially got your crimes against humanity definition from to put into the ILC draft text. Yeah, so for those familiar with the ICC, they're well versed in the idea that it was never intended to be the sole place where these people would be prosecuted, right? It's built on the idea of complementarity. It's built on the idea that in the first instance, it's not only available, but it's preferable that persons be investigated and prosecuted at the national level, Mm -hmm. because we've got a lot more capacity at the national level a lot more resources, a lot more, you know, existing prosecutors and courts and whatnot where prosecutions should occur in the first place. And only if a state is unable or unwilling to prosecute should it then end up going to The Hague. The Hague has limited resources, limited ability. It's it's only gonna be able to prosecute a handful of people in any given year. So ICC is built on that idea of complementarity. That means you need the national state systems in play, uh, and that means you need a treaty instrument to fully bring them into play. Uh, As you say, for genocide, we've got the Genocide Convention. It requires states to seek out and, you know, prosecute persons who commit genocide. Same for war crimes with the 1949 Geneva Conventions. We have no global convention on crimes against humanity 
focused on building up national jurisdiction, national capacity, and putting states in a interstate cooperative relationship on things like extradition, mutual legal assistance, and so on. That doesn't exist in the Rome Statute. It doesn't exist mm. in any other treaty. So the idea is to fill this gap mm. that we have on a major atrocity crime uh, in a way that takes advantage of the modern treaties that we have, torture convention, enforced disappearance, and so on. Use all the new techniques we've got. Use the latest definition, as you say, of crimes against humanity in the Rome Statute. Put it all into a package that builds up the national legal systems. Uh, that's what it's all about. Mm. Um, and so really, it's a piece of international law making, if I may. I'm happy to use the term, even if you're not, Sean. Um, that, that, that really seeks to leverage and ultimately change domestic national laws at the end of the day and, and have bad actors that are described as such a, under international law prosecuted under domestic law. That's exactly what it is. And, you know, it's not the commission doing the lawmaking. We're putting it forward as a thing that we'd like the General Assembly to turn <laughs> into a treaty, right? And, and the reason why it's good to emphasize that is that if it just sits there as articles, um, it's not gonna work or it's not gonna work as well. Uh, you know, treaties are an engine for getting states to do certain things. If you join that treaty, you need to think about your implementing legislation. Right. Uh, some states won't extradite without a treaty in place. Some states right. won't do mutual legal assistance without a treaty in place. So it's the kind of project that unlike the Articles on State Responsibility does need to be turned into a treaty right. in order for it to work. And it then drives things, right? I'm in a country where we don't have a national law on crimes against humanity. We just don't have it. Right. We do on torture because we're a part of the torture convention. We do on genocide, part of the genocide convention, not for crimes against humanity. So right. countries like mine, if there was a treaty, if we had the political, you know, planets yeah. aligned to join the treaty, yeah. it'll make a difference in terms of building up that national capacity. And, and, and Sean, um, I'm curious again, my interest uh, in terms of um, corporate complicity, um, companies these days are being held accountable for human rights abuses, um, generally speaking. Uh, had, did you consider them in your articles and, and how so? Yeah, there's an article on the requirements that a state that joins the treaty has to fulfill in their national law. Some states already have these laws and therefore it's not going to require too much to, to join. Others don't. But one paragraph of that article, it's Article 6, um, addresses corporate um, liability. It's a tricky subject because different countries approach this in different ways. Mm. Some very much have the idea of corporate liability, corporate responsibility. Others, it's an unknown concept. They, they don't think about it as at least criminal liability. They think of it more in terms of administrative law. So you would be able to go after the corporation and perhaps dissolve it. Right. or take its assets or right. things of that Fine. sort. Yep. You don't lock it up in a jail, right? right? So right. Um, when you read that subparagraph, you'll see that it's a bit general in nature. The idea was to try to give space for states to approach this in the way that they do within their national laws, mm. but nevertheless, an obligation to, to do something. Mm. 
Um, let's shift gears. We could talk all day about all this. Let's shift gears to your writing, to that side of your career. You, I'm curious if there is a thread. You've written, as far as I could tell, uh, some general public international law books, some books about the laws of war uh, and the uh, aftermath thereof. You've, you've written about international environmental law. And um, is there a thread that sort of, uh, that has been a, a theme of your writings that, that you perceive? Well, that's a good question. Um, and you're right that I, I think I have been pretty eclectic in uh, my writing. I, uh, I've always kind of wondered why that was, why I didn't dig in on one particular subject matter area and become the person or one of the persons in that particular area. I, I think I just like moving around. I like yeah. uh, exploring new topics. I don't like retreading you know, stuff I've written before and, and whatnot. Um, if there was a theme it helps or that you, thread, it helps that you write the award-winning book on each damn topic that you go to. <laughs> move well, on. I don't know about that, but uh, I enjoy writing, and, and that that makes it easier. Um, yeah, I mean, if there was a theme to it or a thread to it, it might be um, something along the lines of pragmatism and in international law. Uh, I, I I say that meaning that the first roughly dozen years of my career was as a lawyer in the U.S. Department of State. So on a daily basis, international law was a real thing, but it wasn't just some abstract thing. It was, you know, it's helpful for doing this and for preventing that, you know, is is mm. very much rubber meets the road kind of thing. And although I've been an academic now for 20 two years, um, so that I feel very much in academia. Um, I, I would say that it, I'm still, my writing's still animated by this sense of international law being a real thing that does real stuff and is grounded in real activity and that, that we, need to, we need to look at it in that way and not as much as we might like to design the perfect world through a perfect scheme that academics are really good at, at identifying, you know, maybe it's even more important to think about how's this actually going to work in practice? Yeah. What are states willing to do? What are they not willing to do? How does it fit with other values that are in play that maybe we don't think about all yeah. the time? So, I don't know. It's hard self-analyzing, but maybe I'd, I'd put, approach it in that no. way. And, and as, you, as you noted, you were an international law doer before you were an international law thinker. But why did you make that jump? Why did you take that first uh, gig in academia? Yeah, you ask all these uh, self-analyzing questions. I guess, um, you know, I'll, I'll say in part, you know, my father was a professor for his whole career. He was a professor of international economics. So I kind of grew up in the academics, you know, household where he's around in the summers and comes home from classes kind of jazzed up about talking about this or that. Uh, one of my sisters is a professor as well in, in business. Um, uh, so I probably always had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to practice, particularly in this field of international law, that, that for me it, it felt important to ground myself in day-to-day practice yeah. uh, so that I could teach it better and write about it better. Uh, but maybe in the back of my mind, I always thought oh. it would be nice to get out. I do love to write. 
And although I wrote while in government, um, it's harder. It's a lot yeah. harder. You have a lot less time and you have to be careful about what you say. Yeah. So um, I, uh, I, I think it kind of liberated me when I made the jump. All right. I, I, I won't, won't ask you another uncomfortable question about that, <laughs> about that jump. We're gonna, let's, let's do a leap backwards even further. What did you want to do when you grew up? What did you want to be when you were back in high school? Yeah, it probably would depend on what year you asked me. Even in high school, our high school was three years. And, um, you know, probably one year I would have said astronaut. And another year I would have said doctor. And a third year I might have said economist. I studied economics as an undergraduate. And I thought I might go to grad school, you know, influence my father and all that. Yeah. Um, so I, I just, you know, was casting around uh, at that point in my life. And uh, yeah, it took me a little while. The nice thing about the United States, as you know, is we, we do four years of undergraduate education where you just study whatever you want. So I studied history and economics and philosophy and, you know, so on. And it's only at the end of that that you then decide do you want to go to law school? Um, so it took me a little while, but I got there. And, and so was there a moment? Uh, for you that that you said not just law but international law is for me was there a, can you, like was there a that, that you know sliding doors moment for you yeah I guess there was I mean in law school I, I really thought international law was interesting I had some great professors and great courses um, and uh, you know thought it might be a possibility but what happened is I got out I clerked for a, a judge for a year and um, I basically interviewed for two different jobs. One was the State Department Office of the Legal Advisor, because I was interested in international law. But the other was the U.S. Attorney's Office for Washington, D.C., which um, is the type of office that's you know, just doing all kinds of really interesting work uh, for the federal government, uh, civil, criminal, all kinds of things, particularly in Washington, D.C., where you get uh, a mixture of what normally would be state law and, and federal law operating. And the reason I was interested in that latter is I, I, love, lit I love to litigate. I, I found I loved in law school moot courts and standing up and speaking. I thought I was pretty good on my feet. And uh, so I had these two paths. Um, as it turned out, a few months later, the university attorney's office calls me up and says, we really liked you, but we have a hiring freeze. And the State Department called up and said, um, we'd like to offer you a job. So that's the path <laughs> I took. Yeah. And, and as part of that, that, that gig, you landed in The Hague. And uh, I just did want to talk a little bit about your um, advocacy on behalf of US government, as well as now other sovereign governments uh, now in your private post-government capacity. Which do you prefer representing? Representing your your country, um, as you did in, I believe, the International Court of Justice and the ICTY, or other countries now? Yeah, I mean, I can't say that, you know, one's, I mean, it's an honor to represent your own country, for sure, and, and uh, I, I particularly treasured that point in my life because it was when I was learning so much. You know, we get out of law school and we think we know the law. We don't really know the law you need to practice it or, or you know think about it harder or do something and so my time at the state department representing the u.s before the icj and the iran u.s claims tribunal and and so on 
Uh, it was a very formative period for me, but also an honor to be representing the U.S. government. I think because of that experience, when I left and I went into academia, you know, having appeared before tribunals like that, um, it made sense for a country to hire me to help them put together a case. And so I've been fortunate in, in being able to do that uh, since I got into academia, which isn't true of many. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but I, I've, it's an honor every time I'm asked, every government that asks me, it's, it's an honor to represent them. So with that diplomatic nicety out of, out of the way, let me push you. Are there any cases that stand out for you um, that were personal, uh, personally frustrating or personally exhilarating uh, in your roles as, as advocate on behalf of these countries? Um, okay, so I'll give you an example of both exhilarating and frustrating. Um, I represented Kosovo uh, before the International Court of Justice in the advisory opinion on the uh, legality of the Declaration of Independence. And um, it was exhilarating because it was a pretty big case. Um, a lot of governments filed written pleadings. A lot of governments showed up for the oral pleadings. Um, the court structured the oral argument so that Serbia had three hours in the morning and Kosovo, we had three hours in the afternoon on the first day. So it was a big to do, you know, everybody showing up and, and whatnot. And I argued for about an hour before the court, which is a pretty big chunk of our three hour uh, time. So a lot of very exhilarating, just the theatrics of it all, but even more so after the court issued the decision, which largely went in Kosovo's uh, direction. Um, it was exhilarating because it felt as though we'd, we'd accomplished something. Mm. We had, we had in some respects solidified the status mm. of this fledgling mm. country uh, as a country uh, mm. so that more recognitions could come in so that they could begin joining international organizations and so on. It's still not a done thing, but uh, it felt like we'd, we'd, we'd made something happen. And it felt like it had happened in a very legal setting, the kind of thing that international lawyers we want, right? We don't mm. want this fought out on the streets. Right. Uh, we want it channeled into this kind of a path. And to Serbia's credit, that's what it did, right? Mm. It, 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 it wanted this advisory opinion, it participated in it, its supporters participated in it. I mean, that's the way this should happen. And so yeah. that felt really good. Um, on the frustrating side, um, I guess I'll point to my representation of Macedonia before Northern Macedonia, before the International Court of Justice at the time within the UN system known as the, you know, former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. Um, I thought we put on a really good case on um, Macedonia's behalf. I thought um, we got the decision out of the court that was proper and fair and all that. It didn't at least immediately lead to anything. Um, so a lot of time and energy and effort into um, bringing a case against Greece for its steps that were preventing Macedonia from operating in certain ways in the international legal system. And we essentially won the case, but then nothing really came out of it, in particular the ability of Macedonia to uh, accede to the North Atlantic Treaty. Mm. Uh, so that Are you being frustrating. Are you being a bit too harsh now? I mean, looking back uh, over the years, I mean, we now do have a uh, Northern Macedonia who is being welcomed into Western alliances and the, yeah, the community yeah. of, of 
No, you're right. I may be, and uh, it'd be interesting to see uh, an analysis. I think actually at least one has been done about what effect, if any, did the court's decision have on the subsequent uh, diplomacy that led right. to where we are today. And maybe I am selling ourselves short. Right. I just I, I remember in the in the immediate aftermath of the court's decision, thinking we won, therefore right. X. And right. X didn't happen right away. So. International law works, but it works slowly sometimes. <laughs> right. um, so how does how does how does one how does Kosovo find find you? Like do you just hang a shingle out? Uh, how does one get engaged in these interstate uh, arbitrations and uh, legal disputes? Yeah, I, I'm not sure I know entirely. I mean, uh, you know, my own path is not gonna be the same path that others would take, but my own path was because I was in the US government for a dozen years, appearing before these various courts and tribunals, getting to know the, the other advocates and the judges to a certain extent, and just being in those circles, uh, meant that at some point, you know, after I leave the government and, a, and the government wants to show up at the ICJ and they're thinking we want somebody who's done this before and that seems to be a good advocate and that the court maybe knows a little bit and hey, maybe it'd be nice to have an American on the team, right? There's always that sort of right. dynamic. Um, you know, maybe that's why they pick up the, the phone and call me, but, um, you know, I think it's going to differ depending on... Yeah. And being an academic, though, as your full-time gig, gives you that flexibility, presumably, too, to take on those roles in a, on an ad hoc basis. Yeah, it does. That's one of the nice things about being an academic. It, it, it gives you a certain amount of time. You have to be careful, I think. I mean, you can't, you can't become a full-time practitioner. Your job is right. to teach and write. <laughs> Um, and so Sound I like have, my boss. <laughs> well, I mean, I've been fortunate to be able to turn down things too. That I just say, look, I've already got you know whatever it is, a couple cases going, and I just can't take on more. Yeah. Mm. Um, Sean, I'm conscious of time, and I do want to wrap up. But I'm conscious you you, you have uh, your immediate past president of the American Society of International Law. You've had this wealth of experience over many decades. So I just wanted some, uh, to ask you some sort of big reflections on international law, um, especially we're coming up to uh, an election, November 3rd election in the United States. In the United States under the Trump administration has not necessarily, well, let's just say has not been a friend of international law. Um, are you hopeful or optimistic um, looking forward over the horizon for the fate of our international legal system? Yeah, I'd say I'm very optimistic, actually. Um, maybe that's partly just my nature. Um, maybe it's because as a teacher, you know, seeing the, the younger generation coming up that I feel, you know, they're not cynical. They've got a lot of great ideas. They've got a lot of um, thoughts about how things aren't being done as well by us older folks as they it could be done. And, and so I, I think, you know, good changes could be coming. I guess if I want was to, um, you know, give you my sort of bigger picture view on this, when I came into international law back in the 80s, 1980s, um, you know, a lot of people, a lot of my peers would say, you know, what are you doing? That's not real law, hmm. right? That's like glorified political science or something like that. Um, why don't you get a real job instead. 
And, and so the attitude was, I think, um, it doesn't really matter that much, uh, that law. I mean, sure, if you want to have fun with it, you go have fun with it. Um, I don't hear that anymore. Mm. Um, you know, of course, I'm further along in my career. And so, but, but I don't think that's, uh, even with my students, that's not what I hear them mm. saying. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's not significant. You know, you look at the effect that trade agreements have on whether people's jobs are lost, that shows you international law counts for something. You look at the way in which intellectual property is or is not protected across borders, that counts for something. You look at refugees flowing across borders and whether they're protected or not, that's not just making stuff up, right? And I think people see that today and understand that it does matter. And now I'm gonna connect it to sort of where your question was, you know, the current administration in the US, although you could look around the world, there's plenty of administrations there, there's, there's pushback against the idea of international law, the, the rules, the institutions. Why is that pushback occurring? I think it's because international law matters, hmm. right? I think it's because it counts. And I think that it's in a way a sign of the growth and even the health of the system that it is having an effect, it does make a difference, and that because it's having consequences, some number of governments in some ways at some times are pushing back against and, it. And those consequences, you mean, they're impinging on state action, state authorities? Exactly. I mean, the, the human rights revolution has imposed a certain amount of shackles on governments. Mm. And it's like, you know, Gulliver being tied down by the little cushion. Sure, it's gonna to try to get out of it. Sometimes it's gonna pull up an arm, two arms, whatever, but it's there, you know, it's a very real thing. So maybe that will come across as a bit of a, a Pollyanna silver lining, but I yeah. don't think so. I, I think it's, what, it's what, showing that it's a field that's come a long, long way and it's gonna keep going um, and yet we're in a period where there's some amount of retrenchment. So, so let's balance that um, um, vision. Uh, what keeps you up at night though? What, what, what um, could go wrong? You know, is there a, a, a particular hurdle that, what am I trying to say? You know, a crossroads somewhere down the track that if we do go down that way, your, your vision comes to fruition and if we don't, we make a different choice or a moment um, that we address yeah. as a community in a slightly different way, um, we go down a different, more darker route, perhaps? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, on a micro level, things that keep me up are, you know, looking at the suffering of refugees or looking at mm -hmm. um, atrocities that are occurring in certain parts of the world against particular yeah. groups um, that that I just look at that and I say, wait a minute, you know, this is 2020, or, right. you know, this isn't 100 years ago, this shouldn't be happening, right? That on a micro level, that, those things on a more macro level, you know, if people just stop caring mm. about this stuff, I think that's where we go to a really dark place. Mm. If people just say, look, I all I care about is my own well-being, my own small community. I'm not going to get out and vote uh, to, you know, put into office the people I think should be there. Mm. I'm not going to, you know, think about contributing what resources I may have to 
an NGO that's doing certain kinds of activities. Um, I'm not going to be a well-informed mm. person of the world. Um, you know, I think that that takes us to a darker yeah. place because that then allows some of these forces to flourish that, mm. that aren't in our best interests. Um, and we do, do see some of, some of that, don't we? Um, there are trend lines going in, in certain respects in, those, in, in that direction. Um, lightning round. Sean, um, uh, Chris Wallace, one of your great interviewers, does, <laughs> does lightning rounds on Fox News Sunday. Here we go. Um, heroes uh, that have come before you, who do you draw inspiration and energy from? Oscar Schachter, a uh, professor of mine at Columbia University, also a former practitioner. He was at the UN, though for many years in the legal counsel and then jumped into academia, but was a brilliant academic. Um, and uh, I had the honor not just to be a student of his, but to appear before the ICJ in a case with him involving the, uh, the Lockerbie bombings. Um, and, uh, you know, I've always thought I'd, I'd like to live up to that kind of a standard if I could. And best book, fiction or nonfiction, related to international law you've read? Oh, I'll go with Marty Koskemeny's uh, From Apology to Utopia, I guess. Uh, probably part of it is it came out right around the time where I was becoming an international lawyer. And if you had, for those who haven't read it, it blows your mind. I mean, it, it just makes you rethink all kinds of things you thought were truisms um, about the field of international law. Um, and, uh, you know, in blowing your mind, uh, I think makes it better. And, and let's go a bit more populist bent. Uh, favorite movie you've seen related to international law? Uh, it's an old one, but Judgment at Nuremberg, um, 1960, 61, somewhere in there. Uh, because not only is it taking on this formative event, right? The Nuremberg trials where so much of international law, whether you're interested in international criminal law or human rights or, or whatever, international courts, uh, not only is it this huge formative time, but it's all about the so-called judges trial, um, the, the trial at Nuremberg that went after German judges and prosecutors who um, were very well educated, were not especially, you know, uh, racist, weren't Nazi ideologues, but nevertheless, continued to function in a way that supported you know, the Nazi regime. And I, it's, it's a clarion call for all of us who are well-trained, well-educated lawyers, you know, in a situation where, um, you know, you can just smile and sign on the dotted line and not stand up to, to mm -hmm. those that are doing um, what's clearly wrong. Um, it, it's, it's perilous to be, you know, quiet at those times. And given what you've just said, is, is, is Nuremberg your, your favorite historical international law moment? Um, well, maybe. I'll give you another one, though, and that would be the, the, the end of the Cold War and the, 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 the sort of, you know, the reason for that is that I was alive, you know, during the, 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 the end of the Cold War and the, the drop of the Berlin Wall and all that. And, and 
uh, <laughs> I was a young lawyer at the State Department at the time. We had a particular negotiation, a multilateral negotiation we were doing that led to the Open Skies Treaty. This was not the um, commercial aviation thing. This was the uh, arms control confidence building multilateral treaty. The original idea when we started the negotiation in 1989 was that the uh, government aircraft from the west would overfly the east and the east would overfly the west and you know you'd be able to sort of build up your confidence by looking at each other's military installations um but by the time we get to 1991 which is the third round that i think is being held in vienna uh, it was just astounding to see the eastern countries now at all broken up and they're not caucusing as you know warsaw pact anymore they're not even, they're not speaking Russian, which they had been when we started the negotiations. You know, the, the Czechs and others are speaking either German or English or whatever. And they don't want to fly over the West anymore. Right? <laughs> Poland wants to fly over Russia. So it, it was just like this, wow, you know, things change. Yeah. What, a, what, a, what an amazing thing to have yeah. happen. And it, it cool. did change international law in a lot of ways. Two, two fill in the gap questions for you, sir. There ought to be an international law about? Hmm. Yeah, there ought to be an international law about, I guess I would say, um, You've got to say crimes against humanity, actually. You're not allowed to say that. Yeah. You're not allowed Treaty to say that. Crimes against no. humanity. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a good one. No, you're not allowed to say that. <laughs> I'll go along with that one. I was going to reach for something that was addressing our common spaces. You know, we haven't really talked about climate change and about biodiversity on the oceans and satellite, you know, tracks in, in space and whatnot. But we do have these common spaces that we've got um, what I might regard as, um, in some areas, light structures, mm. but we're gonna have to go deeper and deeper in them. You know, look at what's happening to the Arctic ice, um, to Antarctica. Um, space is gonna become an increasingly significant, right. you know, place mm. in which we're doing stuff. Yeah. You know, I would say that that area beyond borders, yeah. um, we need to be, yeah, and even there. even the high seas and the deep seabed and yeah, yeah exactly. Um, We've got great. I mean, the law of sea convention is fantastic for what it does, but it you know the problems just stay ahead of the ability to right. regulate, and we got to keep yeah. up with them. Um, and uh, my final fill in the gap question: International law is three words. Three words. Um, I'll say order with peace order with peace so i the book i wrote on humanitarian intervention was all about the conflict between order and sorry i meant to say order with justice order with justice the the order component includes peace <laughs> so order with justice and the book i wrote and it runs through some of my other scholarship you know this conflict between order and justice yeah. is a is an important um dialectic of sorts and uh i think a lot of what international law is trying to do is to mediate between the two that is we we want a peaceful world we don't want governments invading each other we don't want um 
you know, interference, but we also want justice. We want, we want to be thinking about appropriate distributions of opportunity and wealth and things of that sort. Um, so, you know, I kind of think that peace with justice is what international law is all about. Well, hang on. So now I thought you said order with justice. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm putting in the box of order peace. peace. So order with justice. Okay. Maybe captures it a little bit better. Yeah. Order with justice. Um, and, and, and finally, um, there's a lot of uni students that are going to be listening to this. I'm just curious what, um, what advice would you have given a young Sean Murphy college student? What would you have liked to have heard? Um, you know, I, I think there's a few things that as a young um, person, whether you're an international lawyer or not, but international lawyer, you know, you should be thinking about. So one is um, learn to write. <laughs> Learn to write. Um, you're going to use that no matter what you do. Um, and if you don't feel confident in your writing skills, work on them, find ways to improve them. Uh, it's going to help you throughout your life. Um, look for mentors. Uh, I'm not sure I did that very well, um, but I do think that mentors can uh, be wonderful in guiding you to steps you should be taking, particularly if it's a mentor in the field that you're interested in, mm. um, asking them some of the questions you've been asking me, you know, how did you get to where you got to, um, why are you doing what you're doing, those sorts of things can be really, really helpful. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, just work hard, uh, try to get good grades, um, put in the extra effort, uh, good things come from it. That's awesome. Uh, Sean, we are way out of time. Thank you so much for your, uh, for your time. Thank you for the interview. Thank you for all that you do to uh, advance uh, international law, not least at the International Law Commission, but in all your various guises, including in the classroom. Um, thank you for making the world a better place. Well, thank you, Jonathan. It's been a lot of fun. I, uh, I enjoyed it and I uh, look forward to seeing you again sometime soon. Better Place Talking International Law is produced and edited by Keith Hibbert, advised and supported by Neil Grant, and hosted by Jonathan Kolieb. Music supplied by Ian Post. The Better Place team thank RMIT University for supporting this project, and we acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on whose unceded land we work. We respectfully acknowledge their ancestors and elders, past, present, and future.